Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello history friends, patrons all, and welcome to part two of this extra episode, which examines whether Louis XIV... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Foreign policy was successful. Last time we delved into some background details, which set the scene essentially past the point of the Franco-Dutch War and into the reunions, later periods of Louis' reign, but still parts of history that we're fairly familiar with if we've kept up to date with the recent batch of episodes that I've released. So that was where we ended the episode last time, and here we resume our analysis and reach our conclusion. Expect some spoilers ahead, so if you don't want to know where our narrative is going, maybe don't listen to this, but ah, come on, just listen to it anyway, because it's a good one. Was Louis XIV's foreign policy successful? Let's find out.
The history of France in the 16th century was characterised by the same religious turmoil that ripped the rest of Europe apart and culminated in the Thirty Years' War. Louis XIV's grandfather, Henry IV, was originally a Protestant and had been a member of the French Huguenot minority, but he converted to Catholicism in 1595. In order to ensure religious tolerance for that segment of the population, of which he had once been a member, Henry issued the Edict of Nantes in 1598, which guaranteed freedom of worship for Protestant Huguenots across France. In the years that followed, France was by no means cured of its religious conflicts, but such issues certainly did not dominate the French agenda as they had before. By the time of Louis' birth, the Edict of Nantes was an accepted part of French society and a guarantor of the rights of French Huguenots. However, with the Edict of Fontainebleau on the 22nd of October 1685, Louis erased what had been nearly a century of tolerance, as the practice of Protestant worship was outlawed just like that. The wealth of condemnation at Louis' decision, as well as his resulting efforts to implement the edict, also affected his foreign relations. The courts of Europe, struck by anecdotes of fleeing French Protestants and what it could mean for religious tensions across the continent, since they were all fairly delicately balanced as well, were aghast. One Protestant elector in particular invoked the Edict of Potsdam to entice fleeing French citizens into Brandenburg. The exodus of French citizens resulted in a loss of productive and skilled individuals, not to mention the impact it had on the armed and naval forces, many of whom defected to Dutch or German armies. In short, Louis' Edict of Fontainebleau was an unmitigated disaster for France. It portrayed his rule as one of religious repression and intolerance, while anti-French propaganda was able to spread as far as America as a direct result. The historian David J. Sturdy noted that, After the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, the Protestant states which joined anti-French coalitions were inspired in part by a desire to avenge the suffering of their fellow Protestants. Not even the papacy approved of Louis' actions, remarking that, Christ did not use armed forces to further the gospel. It was not just the ideology but the means by which Louis implemented the edict that drew consternation from Europe. For example, his direct interference in Piedmont and his insistence that its resident sovereign duke persecute any Protestants in the region resulted in thousands of deaths amidst a protracted guerrilla campaign. By attempting to apply his domestic policies in places where he had no business, Louis was presenting himself as a monarch whose tactless wartime diplomacy was matched only by his peacetime religious intolerance. And Louis's heavy-handed approach to implementing his religious policies matches the arrogant tone of his victorious diplomacy, like the aforementioned Dutch negotiations in late 1672. By revoking the Edict of Nantes, Louis needlessly provoked a loyal minority and made it clear that he would no longer accept the peaceful status quo. It is a policy comparable to his war against the Dutch, since in this case Louis also attacked an ally willing to go to literally any lengths to maintain the French friendship. By creating enemies within and without, Louis was setting France up for a disastrous encounter with the consequences of policies that he had set in motion. It is little wonder that John A. Lynn noted cuttingly, Louis only found religious turmoil in France when he had created it himself. The next major war Louis faced is often referred to as a major miscalculation. 
such a label is appropriate because, in contrast to previous wars for glore, Louis no longer sought war for the mere sake of it. His subsequent policies of war and acquisitions had the end goal of security, though because his conduct and methods were the same, it is unlikely that his rivals could tell the difference. Such a point is important because it helps to explain why, when Louis sought again to effectively bully compliance and an ultimatum out of the Holy Roman Emperor and some minor German princes in late 1688, he was so vociferously opposed. Although Louis may have believed he was merely ensuring French security by demanding that his previous gains be guaranteed, his ultimatums and overbearing tone merely echoed his previous conduct. In effect, they confirmed to Europe that the King of France was not willing to coexist peacefully with his neighbours. So the Nine Years' War, from 1688 to 1697, would plunge France into an abyss of debt, domestic strife and external crises. It is important for the purpose of this extra episode to note that Louis did not intend to fight the long protracted war that history now recounts took place. The immediate cause of the war stemmed from the issue of succession, one in the Palatinate and another in Cologne. Louis would, especially in the case of the latter, draw the ire of Europe for his interference in the region, this despite the fact that, as Antony Levi, a biographer of Louis XIV, notes, Louis had no rights in the matter at all, and he only acted because he saw a pretext and demanded a share in the succession. Louis believed that by seizing what he required along the Rhine and issuing demands to potential enemies from an advantageous position, he could avoid a war or at least wage one on a limited, affordable budget. Yet as he had done in previous years, Louis accounted neither for foreign intransigence nor for the determination of William of Orange to rally European opinion against him in the hope of forming another anti-French coalition, an act which the now English king continued until the early 18th century. Louis issued his manifesto in late September 1688, in which he demanded that the previous Treaty of Ratisbon that had ended the process of the reunions with Spain in 1684 be made permanent and that the succession crisis in the electorate of Cologne be resolved in favour of the French candidate William von Furstenberg, the same Furstenberg that had served Louis so loyally before. Louis gave the Holy Roman Emperor, still distracted with his Ottoman war, three months to comply. To ensure that his demands were met, Louis began a process of forced coercion that resulted in a further inflammation of European opinion against him. He invaded the Palatinate and seized the strategically important fortress of Philipsburg, thus sealing the Rhine against his enemies. By so acting, of course, Louis could claim that he only sought guarantees from the German princes in the region and from Leopold I. On the other hand, if the Holy Roman Emperor managed to redirect a portion of his forces away from the Turkish struggle, then Louis would be in a sound strategic position to defend his realm and interests. Louis's miscalculation, as it transpired, was expecting the minor German princes to capitulate. Although Louis could claim that he desired no further territorial concessions, save from the guarantees he requested, his foreign policy in Germany was failing, and Bavaria, Brandenburg and Hanover, as well as a number of other German princes, were fashioning an alliance against him. To this alliance of German princes were added the powers of Spain and Sweden, while the imperial diet declared war on Louis in January 1689. Further events gave Louis cause for concern. 1688 had been a crisis year for his English partnership, 
as years of financial and political support for the regime, first of Charles and then his brother James, evaporated with the onset of the Glorious Revolution and the succession to the English throne of Louis's prolific Dutch enemy, William of Orange. With England and the Netherlands now united under a common monarch and guaranteed to participate in the slowly mounting coalition of states against him, the League of Augsburg, the greatest consequences of Louis's foreign policy to date, came into being. The resulting war lasted for nine terrible years, as we know, and it was destined to be the costliest and most desperate conflict that Louis had yet fought. The struggles therein virtually erased what had been a period of glory for the Sun King in the minds of most of his subjects, as social discontent, on a level never before seen, began to manifest itself with a newfound vengeance. The very fact that Louis's foreign policy had resulted in another unwanted coalition war against France demonstrates its severe shortcomings. Yet again, as he had in 1674, Louis had grossly misjudged the international situation. And not only that, but the orders Louis sent to his officials along the Rhine in early 1689, while the Grand Alliance was forming against him, read like a recipe for international provocation. Having frightened minor German princes, alienated former allies, and handed pieces of propaganda on a platter to his nemesis by acting so recklessly along the Rhine in the first place, Louis continued to display a flagrant disregard for foreign opinion by ordering his agents to adopt a scorched policy in the Palatinate. Thus the French act of burning the Palatinate to the ground began in earnest. By ordering such a savage and extreme policy, Louis may have believed he was ensuring French security by creating a wasteland in between his realm and that of the enemy but in reality he pushed further neutral German princes into opposition against him. Once it became clear that Leopold, the Holy Roman Emperor, would not be intimidated, French methods became even more savage, as the cities of Worms, Heidelberg and Speyer were razed to the ground, and German tales of the French Attila became commonplace. Louis made it clear he would not tolerate those rulers that resisted his demands, giving express orders to punish the Elector of Trier for resisting French advances along the Rhine. By 1690 it was apparent that France stood virtually alone in Europe, faced with a coalition composed, get this, of Britain, the Netherlands, Spain, Sweden, Lorraine, Savoy, Brandenburg, Bavaria, Hanover, Austria, as well as a score of minor German principalities and microstates who now looked to the Holy Roman Emperor for their security, against the Sun King's seemingly boundless ambition, ruthlessness and rapaciousness. When peace finally did come, in 1697, Louis' France was still intact, in itself a remarkable feat considering the forces levelled against her. Yet, although the Peace of Rysvik in late September 1697 did not strip France of her sovereignty or significantly stunt subsequent French ambitions, they did inexorably force her king to give ground. The list of concessions is striking. Louis had to recognise William of Orange as the rightful king of Britain, he had to hand back his territorial gains that he had made during the reunions in the early 1680s, apart from Strasbourg, and he also had to hand the other coup of the reunions, the Alps Fortress of Casale, back to the Duke of Savoy in the year before. France had to withdraw from Catalonia, sign a trade agreement that favoured the Dutch, 
and allow 11 fortress towns to devolve back to Dutch control, Louis also acquiesced to the successions of Cologne and the Palatinate that had perpetuated his ill-advised interference in German affairs a decade before. The historian Philip McCluskey noted on the aftermath of the war that The Nine Years' War marked a real turning point in the reign of Louis XIV. The Sun King now found himself engaged in a conflict he could only extricate himself from by offering significant concessions to his enemies. Lorraine, now fully integrated into the kingdom, loomed large as one of these possible concessions. By returning Lorraine to its duke under the terms of the treaty signed in 1661, after occupying it since 1670, Louis was conceding one of his earliest acquisitions. Such a capitulation embodies the desperate state of France at the close of the 17th century. Louis's misjudgments, his hideous policies of pillage and burn, and his ability to turn Europe against him had warranted these significant French concessions. Had Louis's reign ended in 1685, one would be accurate in labelling him the Great. One could justifiably term his foreign policy a success, in spite of the significant flaws and problems at its core. Yet even with the French gains in power, prestige, influence and land by 1685, Louis had cast France as the enemy of the European peace. The Sun King had too often disregarded foreign opinion in the past, but before the Nine Years' War, France had not deservedly, if that is the right word, suffered for it. The Nine Years' War can therefore be considered the bill for Louis' excesses. Blinded by his previous successes, by his contempt for the Holy Roman Emperor's forces and by his own ignorance of foreign opinion, Louis XIV operated on the eve of the Nine Years' War as though Europe would continue to tolerate the overbearing aspects of his foreign policy. He did not suitably consider the possible consequences of his actions on the eve of war in 1688 because his previous involvement in foreign affairs had produced no consequences of note for France. Although his interest in foreign policy had shifted from seeking glory to seeking security, because his methods and attitude remained the same, Europe couldn't tell the difference between the blustering and belligerent young man of the late 1660s and the Sun King of the late 1680s, and that in itself constitutes a failure in his policy. Thus Louis was only able to end the war that his own miscalculations had induced by sacrificing the vast majority of the prizes he had acquired since he began his personal rule. Some of his contemporaries believed that he was being excessively generous at the bargaining table, and that potential unrest in the Allied camp may have enabled Louis to demand a higher price for peace. Additional figures at the same time noted the necessity of achieving peace in Europe. The Spanish king, Carlos II, was dying without any direct issue, and the succession that loomed threatened to perpetuate yet another weighted struggle. The War of the Spanish Succession is often portrayed as the attempt of Louis XIV to unite the Franco-Spanish crowns and establish a massive Bourbon bloc in Europe. The truth is far more complex. While the war that began in 1701 and ended in 1714 represents the last, most exhaustive struggle of Louis's reign and arguably the manifestation of all of his foreign policy failures, its origins lie in the system of marital bonds that had been woven into the diplomatic framework of Europe over the previous few decades. Again, it is worth noting that the guiding principle of all interested parties, including Louis XIV, was to avoid another war of the succession issue, and thus the partition treaty had been devised 
to appease all sides. Such treaties encountered setbacks, though, when the agreed-upon heir to the Spanish throne, a minor Bavarian prince, died in 1699 of smallpox, thus prompting another series of negotiations. The issues were still being contested, it had to be said, when Charles II, or Carlos II of Spain, died on the 1st of November, 1700. Although the death of Carlos injected a certain level of urgency into the negotiations, the most significant revelation was contained in Carlos's will, in which the late Spanish king named Louis's second grandson Philip, the Duke of Anjou, as heir to Spain and all of its dependencies. Louis was thus faced with the dilemma of accepting Carlos's will and placing his grandson on the Spanish throne, perhaps unduly offending the former members of the Grand Alliance in the process, or ignoring the will and the implications that it had for Bourbon fortunes in the world. The fact that Louis chose to accept Carlos's will did not necessarily mean that war against the members of the Grand Alliance was imminent. All of Europe had expended vast resources fighting the Nine Years' War, after all, while the Holy Roman Emperor had endured 16 years of war with the Ottoman Empire. Louis's argument since invading the Spanish Netherlands in 1667 was that his wife's renunciation of her Spanish inheritance had been made null and void thanks to the Spanish failure to uphold their side of the agreement. He now had to prove his passion for the inheritance issue when war with a resurrected Grand Alliance might be the penalty. Louis believed emphatically in the divine right of kings, and it is thus incorrect, some would say unfair, to judge this stage of his decision-making process as a step towards the domination of Europe. If anything, Louis upheld that he could not disobey the will of God, which manifested itself in the continued succession of Europe's dynasties, including his own. This belief was a common theme throughout Louis's reign, but it must be emphasised that Louis's beliefs did not ensure the outbreak of the following war. It was not Louis's acceptance of Carlos's will, or even the dispatching of his grandson to Madrid, that began the War of the Spanish Succession, Instead, it was Louis's reckless arrogance and his brazen method of dealing with his European rivals, who, after fighting Louis's France already for nine long years, would be so inflamed by his foreign policy that they resurrected the Grand Alliance and realised all of Louis's fears as a war more protracted, costly and disastrous than the Sun King had ever known would be fought against him for twelve appalling years. Almost two years passed between Louis's acceptance of the Spanish crown and the outbreak of war over the Spanish succession. During that period, a peace-eager Europe should have been faced with reassuring signals and messages from Louis explaining his intentions regarding the fundamentally noble decision he made to accept Carlos's will. Instead, Louis's rivals were confronted with the belligerent image of France seizing, by way of its large armies, crucial fortresses in the Spanish Netherlands from the Dutch, and of intimidating the Dutch Republic into accepting the new Spanish king, Philip V. Louis followed this ill-advised military policy with an economic one. He ensured through his new Spanish connections that the right of asiento, or lucrative supply of slaves to the Spanish colonies, would be exclusively held by France, which of course meant that the English and Dutch were barred from any profit in the matter. Such an act provided an example of how Louis expected the two crowns to work together. It made economic sense, but to the maritime powers such an act demonstrated how potentially powerful and dangerous the Franco-Spanish bloc could be when it acted in concert. 
A further blow to the peace came when the exiled former King of England, James II, died in France. As Antony Levi noted, Louis picked up the challenge by immediately and unnecessarily recognising James's 13-year-old son as James III, going back on his recognition of William as the English King at Ryswick. The situation soon escalated because of this. Leopold sent troops into Italy and resurrected the Grand Alliance in late 1701, and with its rebirth the failings of Louis's foreign policy became apparent. Unable to convince Europe that he had changed, the Sun King instead managed to intimidate and anger a war-weary coalition into reforming and making war against him only five years after the Nine Years' War had ended. As the cherry on top of all this, and as though he was deliberately trying to provoke a hesitant Europe into more war, Louis refused to remove Philip V from the French line of succession. Thus, even though a few powers had accepted Philip V as King of Spain, the war of the Spanish succession can actually be seen as a war against unifying the French and Spanish crowns, because when the European powers saw, on top of everything else, that Louis was unwilling to remove Philip from the right of inheritance in France, it created a terrifying image of the future that suggested that France and Spain could be united under one monarch. Rather than removing this fear from the European consciousness, which wouldn't have been impossible to do, and assuaging their fears, Louis continued on bullishly and inconsiderately, adding to their fears by piling on one insult or threat after another. Although France did survive the War of the Grand Alliance and its outcome, resulted in the creation of a Bourbon-Spanish line, the war simply cannot be considered a French victory. Allied military victories led by the Duke of Marlborough and Eugene of Savoy ensured that France remained on the defensive at least until 1711. The war ruined France economically. Its continuation in the midst of terrible famine, harsh winters and military crisis after crisis seemed to suggest the end of French sovereignty. Yet Louis held on despite the severest of setbacks. He continued the war despite the agonised pleas of the citizenry for change and social upheaval, and he remained intransigent to the point that his original goals for France and Spain were eventually met in the 1714 peace. Though at a cost so high, the outcome appeared unworthy. On his deathbed, Louis declared to his five-year-old heir, his great-grandson Louis XV, that I have been too fond of war. Do not imitate me in that. Such a confession is certainly revealing, but does it demonstrate an admission on the part of Louis that his foreign policy had failed? Louis's famed engineer Vauban, in fact, provides us with the means to pass such a judgment. Vauban posited that a king's greatness, including that of his foreign policy, is to be measured by the resulting prosperity and contentment of his subjects. If historians were to assess Louis' foreign policy based on this criteria, though, the Sun King would certainly have failed the test. Instead, what is required is the ability of the historian to place Louis' actions in context. Were his policies successful in reaping benefits in prestige, land, or glory? Again, it is difficult to argue that Louis' ends justified the means. Far too often did Louis wage war in the name of an outcome that could have been achieved without conflict and with more diplomatic finesse. Louis did not wish to wage the kind of coalition war that emerged in 1674, 1688 or 1702, yet because of his arrogant dealings with the Dutch, his burning of the Palatinate and his failure to assure Europe of his peaceful intentions, each of these issues mutated and expanded 
into the kind of protracted struggle which France simply could not afford, and which in the long run bankrupted, starved and isolated her. Thus Louis's diplomatic blunders actually made his own mission of bettering France more difficult. He cast France as the enemy of Europe's religious freedoms, as the disturber of the peace, as the continental intimidator determined to bully his way through international practice. These shortcomings must be construed as a fundamental failure in his foreign policy. Louis simply did not possess the ability to assess foreign opinion and act accordingly, or if he did possess that ability, he chose not to use it at all. Louis's control over foreign policy spanned over four decades, an era that seemed both to his enemies on the continent and to his subjects who would celebrate his death in some cases decades too long. France would remain a predominant power throughout the 18th century, and would actually recover financially in remarkably quick time. However, such a recovery and resulting predominance in European affairs must be viewed as an accomplishment that the French nation achieved in spite of the Sun King's control over foreign policy, rather than because of it. Okay, history friends and patrons, what did we think of that? Was I fair or too harsh on poor old Louis? In many ways, the question we raised here is a continuous one, stretching throughout Louis' reign, because the man was simply so important to European history and development during this period, many are drawn to covering his reign in detail, as we have tried to do. Going forward, in particular with the extra episodes which are to come over July and August, we will delve into the question by default, because we'll examine how Louis rationalised the series of wars he participated in with the urgent need to reinforce his kingdom's security. To Louis, it seemed, the price was worth what would be achieved in the end, though we can certainly detect a twinge of regret that perhaps it had come at a higher price than he would have preferred to pay. Though whether the proud Sun King would have admitted to his court and inner circle this confession of his personal proclivity for ruinous foreign wars is debatable, even if he was apparently willing to confess to his late great-grandson. In any event, I hope you've enjoyed this deeper examination of Louis XIV's life and reign, and that you'll be sure to let people know what you all thought about it, since as diplomats, hence the name, I rely on you guys to represent me to the wider podcasting realm, or something like that. Thanks again for listening, and of course for supporting this podcast, my lovely history friends. This has been When Diplomacy Fails Extra, and I'll be seeing you all very soon. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 